Thank you so much for hitting the play button on another episode of A Duff Said. I'm Duff Tyler. My guest on this edition is a man who spent 33 years calling professional baseball games. High fly ball! Deep in the left! Did he do it? It's gone! It's a walk-off home run for Punch! High fly ball center field. Gardner going back, still going back. Track! Wow! Mario and Pemba spent 17 seasons in the TV booth for the Detroit Tigers. But as you're about to hear, it took a lot of stops for him to get there. The first 18 years of his broadcasting career were spent in the minor leagues. That's where he developed into a broadcaster and a play-by-play announcer. Now Mario had to sacrifice a lot in order to be an announcer in MLB. It would first pay off for him big time when he landed his first big league job in 1995 with the then California Angels. After seven years in LA, Mario's lifelong dream came true. He got the play-by-play TV gig with his hometown, Detroit Tigers. All those nights we watched the excitement, the comebacks, the no-hitters, the division titles, and arguably the best team to never win a World Series, Mario was dialed into all of that action on the field, and we tuned in to listen to him. So many great moments, so many great nights of Tigers baseball, We will get into all of that, and we'll discuss his latest endeavor. You see, when you have a career that long, you tend to build up a lot of memories. You also learn a few things along the way. And now Mario is sharing all of those experiences and lessons over three decades in baseball into a new book he just wrote called Major League Mindset. It's a book he wrote in order to give younger broadcasters an idea of what it'll take to be successful as a play-by-play announcer. My conversation with Mario and Pemba starts now. Mario, thank you so much for making the time on this edition of A Duff Said. It is great to finally meet you. Hey, Duff, great to meet you. I appreciate the time and I look forward to it today. So I want to share a quick story with you because as I was talking to you before we got this interview started, you were one of those first guys that I got to listen to when I came to Detroit. I moved to Detroit back in 2009. I was originally from Terre Haute, Indiana. I grew up in an area that had Major League Baseball. If you were a Cubs, Cardinals, or Reds fan, we didn't get a lot of Detroit Tigers baseball where I lived because... Everybody was a fan of those organizations, so we got to hear a lot of great voices. We got to hear the Carey family, we got to hear the Brenneman family, and we got to hear the Buck family. But I never got to hear Mario and Pemba until I got here in 2009. And so, just like King Cal was that voice for me with the Red Wings coming up uh, in 2009 when they were in the Cup Finals, you were that guy for me 
as far as baseball. And as soon as I heard you, I was like, wow, this guy's really good. I'm going to take a listen and really get to enjoy Detroit Tigers baseball listening to you and Dan Dickerson. So it's good to finally run you down. I'm thrilled to talk to you because you've got a new book out. What can you tell me about it? Well, I guess it grew during uh, the pandemic, you know, with COVID. I think we're all kind of stuck in our homes, and I was no different. And, uh, you know, my last year was with the Red Sox in 2019. And at that point, I decided, well, I'm going to try and get back in baseball. But the pandemic hit, and that pretty much settled that. So I decided that, you know, I've always loved writing. And I took the time where we were stuck at home and and started, you know, putting down some notes about – what I thought would make a good play by play broadcaster in baseball. And, you know, close to 50,000 words later, I'm not, I'm thinking, wow, I've got myself a book here. So, you know, I decided to publish it independently and it was kind of a labor of love. I love to write. And I think I have over, you know, 33 years of experience in the game. I have, you know, over time gathered a lot of information that I think young announcers can really use and can really benefit from and, you know, hopefully the stuff I've gleaned over the years, I can transfer to them and, and they can become better announcers and kind of progress in their career. So, you know, it's kind of a niche book. You know, you've got to be want to be an announcer and you've got to want to be a baseball announcer. And, and, you know, I think the ideas and techniques in this book will help you if, if that's your course in life. Um, you know, but even general sportscasting and, and things of that nature and, and the mental aspects of, of broadcasting daily, I think, are covered in the book. So, that's pretty much an overview of what I've created, and you know, hopefully uh, some young announcers can benefit from it. The book is called Major League Mindset, and I really like the fact that you've taken the time to write this for the younger crowd who might be interested in getting a sports broadcasting career. I'll tell you, I wish this book had been around when I was coming up because there really wasn't a blueprint for how to be a sportscaster uh, how was that for you? I mean, when you were coming up in those days in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, did you really have a book like this that you could turn to for advice on how to be a Major League Baseball play-by-play announcer? No, Duff, not at all. And that's part of the reason I wrote this. And, and I've heard a lot of young guys already tell me that, saying that, boy, I wish, you know, or older guys, I should say, said, I, I wish we had something like this one. You know, I was the young announcer. I, I had nothing. We had nothing in the in the 80s. Um, I was at Michigan State in the mid-80s before I got my first chance in the late 80s and finally got to the big leagues in the mid-90s. But even then, there really wasn't a whole lot. I mean, you, you really had to rely on picking the brains of guys that had been there. And so what I would do in spring training uh, when I was in AAA in Tucson, we had the Cleveland Indians at that time uh, as our spring training team playing out of our facility there. And the big league guys would roll through every March during spring training. And I would just take the time to sit down, write some thoughts down, pick their brains, see how I could get to the big leagues, how I could improve. And I think that's really the only thing we had. There was nothing really on paper. There were no manuals. There were no how to it books. There were no broadcasting for dummies books. I mean, you know, it's something you had to kind of learn on your own. And, And that's what I did over the years. And so I think now, it's, it's great to be able to reach out to the young announcers. And, and I do want to emphasize both female and male announcers. I, you know, I, I think that there aren't enough female voices in the game right now, and, and we're starting to make inroads there. But uh, a few have reached out to me, and it's really gratifying because 
is fun to be able to help them along or answer some questions or, or give them some guidance on maybe what they should and shouldn't do. And so, um, yeah, that that's part of the big reason that I wrote this book. And, you know, hopefully again, it'll help some people. What are some things that you really hope people take away from this book? Well, there are a lot. I, you know, I think the main thing is, is that it, it just doesn't come easy. And, you know, there are, there are a lot of people vying for a few amount of jobs, really. I mean, there are only so many jobs in big leagues and it's really difficult. So the, you know, the competition is fierce, but I will say that one of the things I hope people take away from this is that, you know, you can't, you can't look at it as a whole. You have to incrementally look at your career. You've got to take it step by step. And for me, that was my main goal. I wanted to get to the minor leagues. Okay, well, I got an A-ball job. Okay, my next step was getting to double-A. And then, you know, I, I, I sidestepped double-A, but got to triple-A. And I'm like, all right, great. Now I'm at triple-A. Let's improve. Let's figure out how to get to the big leagues. And then eventually I got to the big leagues. You can't come out of college. I don't care where you go to school, whether it's Syracuse or, uh, you know, a small community college. You can't come out of school thinking – that the Detroit Tigers are going to hire you right out of school. I mean, you, you've got to realize that maybe I've got to go down to the minor leagues. I've got to learn my craft. And, and honestly, I never felt I was ready for the big leagues until I got to AAA. When I was in A-ball, I never thought, man, you know, if the Tigers call me tomorrow, I, I just, I'll go. And, well, A, it wasn't going to happen. And B, I would not have been ready. So even if I did get that chance, it would have been a short-lived chance because I just wasn't ready. So don't rush your career. Be patient. Uh, take it step by step, and learn the ins and outs of the business. Learn how to improve daily. I mean, I you know, my 33rd year in broadcasting was 2019 with the Boston Red Sox, and I was still learning things from Joe Castiglione, who was the lead announcer there. And I've been in the big leagues 25 years at that point. But I was still learning things, and you can always learn from others. You can't have an ego in this business. If you do, you'll stop learning. If you think you've got it all figured out, you'll stop learning. And and that's, to me, not, not the way to go. You know, one of the things I've heard throughout my career is the day that you think you know everything is probably the day you should retire because what is there left to accomplish at that point? Yeah, you're right. There's there's really nothing left to accomplish. And you know, for example, when I was when I was with the Red Sox for that one year in 2019, um, like I said, I'd been in the big leagues for 25 years at that point. And I figured, well, you know, there isn't a whole lot that I haven't seen, but I still had an open mind to go into that booth and learn from a guy who had actually been in the big leagues a little bit longer than me, in Joe Castiglione, and. I just marveled at some of the things he did on the air that I just, I couldn't do. And so I thought I need to improve in these areas. And so, you know, that kind of proves the point that there's always someone out there that's better than you. And there's only someone out there that's not as talented in you, as you. So you've got to realize that going in, you're never ever going to be the best ever. I mean, it, it's 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 really hard to do. Vince Scully is probably considered the best ever, but is he really? I mean, that that is all subjective. So, going to the business, realizing it is all subjective, and that all you can do is really be as consistent and as good as you can become, 
and, and you'll be fine. Um, but if you go into it thinking, man, you know, I've got, I got five years in business, not a whole lot left to do now at this kind of coast, you're going to flame out quick. You know, everything that we've talked about thus far is everything I wish I would have heard 20 years ago when I was coming into the business. I graduated in 2000 from Indiana State University. Again, not a Syracuse, not a Missouri, not Arizona State. Schools that are known for cranking out big-time broadcasters. But I had just as much of training and learning as I was going to get coming out of those schools. But no one really told me the steps that are necessary in order to have a career in sports broadcasting. One of the things that really surprised me right out of the gate when I was coming up as just anybody interested in broadcast journalism was... When I got my first internship in Indianapolis, I thought, okay, I'm really going to impress these people. They're going to want to hire me as soon as this internship is over. And then I quickly found out, you don't get a job in Indianapolis with your first internship. There's a lot of steps that you have to take in order to make that happen. For you, here are some of the places that you had to go in order to get your first major league job. You had to go to places like Peoria, Illinois, Davenport, Iowa and Tucson, Arizona, before you got that first call for the California Angels back in the mid-90s. What was it like as you were coming up in all those small towns? Because one of the things they don't tell you in addition to all that is you're not going to make a lot of money either. You're going to have to really make this work. You have to really think of it as you're not going to make it uh, big time financially or make it big time in terms of where you're going to work. So as you're coming up in all these small towns and working in single-A and triple-A baseball, what were some of those experiences like for you as you were honing your craft? Well, you know, I, I tell people that my time in the minor leagues was the worst time in my life and the best time in my life. I mean, it really was a little bit of both. And it was the best time because I was young. I didn't have really many responsibilities. I was just out of school. I was learning my craft. I mean, I was able to do, you know, baseball games and do that for a living and, and do some hockey and basketball in the offseason. I mean, what could be better than that? I mean, so it was a really cool lifestyle, but I wasn't making any money at all. And it was it was a rough go in the beginning. And I had to learn how to survive because I was one of those kids that didn't want to be able to pick up the phone and say, dad, I need some money. I just wanted to get this done on my own. You know, I had really supportive parents, which gave me a leg up because they easily could have said, look, you know, we pay for your education, go to Michigan State University, and this is what you're doing. You're making 500 bucks a month calling ball games in, in Peoria, Illinois. I mean, come on, you know, we need to get a real job here. They never did that to me. They always believed that I knew what was best. I knew what I wanted. And they let me pursue my dream. So that was great. Um, but it was hard. Believe me. I mean, I tell the story in my book about how, you know, it got so bad financially that I had to go raid my baseball card collection and start selling off my baseball cards just to eat. And, you know, that's the way it was. Now, things have improved a little bit in terms of what people can make in the minor leagues now, but not a whole lot. I mean, it, it's it's going to take some sacrifice. And if you can get some support from family, that's great, but not everybody has that. Um, so you, you've got to decide what level of sacrifice you want to make. And for me coming out of college, this was it, man, there was no plan B for me. And I don't know if that was smart or I don't know if that was dumb, but I think the fact that there was no plan B kind of lit a fire under me 
as to where I had to make those sacrifices and find a way to get it done. And so I did. I mean, I, you know, I, I did it step by step. Like I said, I went from a ball, triple A to the big leagues and, and learned a lot along the way. But you know, I never thought when I got to a ball that I had made or that it was guaranteed that I'd be a big league announcer. I mean, I, I, I just never felt that. And um, I felt that when I got to triple A, I told myself mentally, Hey, you know what? This isn't bad. If, if you know, the top rung of my ladder is triple A, that's pretty good. I mean, enjoying it. I, I've got a great family. I'm not making a whole lot of money, but it's still a pretty cool lifestyle. Um, but then, you know, the big leagues came calling and, and things kind of took off from there. But it was a learning experience. And I think what most kids have to realize coming out of school is just one key word, and that's sacrifice. Because if you're not willing to put in the work, um, it's probably not going to happen for you. You have to put in the work because it is not easy to call a game for three hours every day. We've had Brad Tunney of the Great Lakes Loons on before, and he'll tell you, even in single A ball, you have to do a lot of homework in order to be successful on the mic for those three hours that you're calling a game. For anybody that is interested in taking on a play-by-play role or even an analyst role, what advice would you give them in order to be successful, and what kind of work has to go into making that successful? Well, there is no excuse today, Duff, for not being ready for a broadcast. There is zero excuse. When I came up in the minor leagues uh, in the mid-'80s, 87 was my first year with Peoria, our game prep available to me consisted of the stat sheets that were faxed from the league to our office with the game stats. And that was it. There was no internet. There was, you know, there were no books to read. You knew nothing about these guys. So you really had to, when the team got to town before the season started, you had to sit down with every guy and try and flush out stories. You had to sit down with the manager, the pitching coach, the trainer, everybody and flush out information. Now it's all provided for you on the internet and, you know, whether it's reading opposing cities, newspapers to read up on their players, going to baseballreference.com, baseballsavant.com, fangraphs.com, you know, name your website. It's all out there for you, but you have to be careful. You still have to go on the field and you've got to talk to players. You've got to be in the clubhouse. You've got to be in the locker room. And you've got to flush out these stories that make the game interesting. You know, my theory and my philosophy on this is that analytics are great and they've really changed the game. And and it's given us a different way to evaluate and look at players. But in the end, it's all about the human aspect of the game. And this is what made guys like Vince Scully and Jack Buck and Ernie Harwell so good. They were able to not only tell the story, but tell it in a way that would make you want to listen and retain it. And that is not easy to do. Um, so I would say that, you know, there is, there is really no excuse for you to show up with a blank score sheet and say, let's call a game today. You've got so much at your fingertips available. It's just a matter of figuring out where to find it. You know, I think in the book, I've, I've tried to lay out the best ways to do that. Um, to make it easier. And if, if you go into a game today not prepared, uh, then you got to get what you deserve. Uh, you know, I, I think you got to put the work in and, and people don't realize that they can show up at 7 o'clock and do a ball game for three hours and go home. 
it doesn't work that way. You're up early, you're on the internet, you're prepping, you do conference calls, you've got so much going on um, just to get ready for that next that night's broadcast. And then you do it all over again the next day. So uh, it's a, a constant process. It's one that never stops either. When you're doing a 162 game season for a major league baseball team, how much more work does that include? Well, here's here's the the thing you're running to in the big leagues. Um, you know, when you're doing college baseball, you might do what 30, 40 games a year. When you're doing minor league baseball, you're probably doing 142. When you're doing big league baseball, you're doing 162 plus spring training and maybe postseason. So, you could be doing up to 200 events a year. Now, the the, the trouble comes in, or the, or the issues come in when you're playing. In our case with the Tigers, we're playing, say, Cleveland or Kansas City in September for the 19th time that year. And you've got to find a way to make it fresh. I mean, people only want to know about certain stories so many times. And then, you know, that's it. They they kind of tune you out. You've got to find a way to make it fresh. And that can be tough to do in the major leagues, um, especially because – you play three with KC and then you jet off to Cleveland and now you're starting a three game series the very next night with Cleveland. You really don't have time to prep, you know, individually uh, for each game. So you kind of have to do it ahead of time. So saying game two of the KC series already starts to look ahead to Cleveland or Minnesota, whoever we're playing next. And you constantly have to keep ahead of the game and, uh, it's hard. It's challenging, but it, believe me, it's a blast. And uh, to do it at the highest level, the major league level, is is so rewarding. And it is a great job. But in addition to doing all that work and traveling, you also have a family that you're taking care of. How were you able to balance all that work and still have, make time for your wife and your two sons? Well, I mean, that's that's very difficult to juggle, and that one word comes into play again, and that's sacrifice. And, you know, I, I think I, I've spoken to so many guys in the major leagues that have ended up divorcing their spouses because their spouses just thought they could deal with it, but they eventually couldn't because their husbands were away for so long. Um, fortunately for me, uh, when I met my wife in A-ball, uh, you know, she understood what the game was all about. She worked at the ballpark, so she understood how you play every night and how I would travel a lot. And going into it, she knew that it wasn't going to be easy, but it's what I wanted to do. She wanted to be with me, and, and so we made it work. But that doesn't always happen. Um, the sacrifice comes in where you miss Little League games. You miss, you know, dance competitions. You miss, you know, uh, band concerts. Uh, you name it. And those are hard things to deal with. I mean, I remember when my oldest son was in Little League and they just gotten to, uh, you know, with coach pitch for now, the kids were pitching to each other. So he had to be, I don't know, seven or eight years old. And, you know, we're in New York playing a series against the Mets. And I remember it was Father's Day. And I, I remember the game ending. And I walked out of uh, Shea Stadium. And I got on the phone with my wife and said, hey, how'd Brett do today? And, and she said he hit his first home run. And he hit it on Father's Day. And I wasn't there to see it. And so I was happy. But at the same time, I was devastated. You know, and those are the things that you've got to deal with. I mean, you, you can't have it all in life. You can't have it all in this business. 
and anybody that's done this for um, even a modicum amount of time is going to tell you that, you know, there are some things that, that you're just going to have to give up. And for me, it was watching a lot of my kids uh, younger years growing up. I had to give that up. Uh, but in the end, I think it was worth it for all of us. What did you guys do in order to make up for that time around this time of year with the holidays? Well, you did everything. I mean, it, it was payback time. I mean, I, you know, I know in my household, my wife said, you got two weeks. <laughs> you got two weeks to unwind. You, you got two weeks to decompress. And that's it. Get to work, baby. <laughs> you know, you're bringing your kids to school and, and all that kind of stuff. And and, and we, we would laugh about it. And I understood. And she, honest to God, she left me alone for two weeks. And I just kind of, you know, going through a big league season is you, you can't explain until you actually do it. I mean, you are so mentally and physically spent and destroyed at the end of the year, uh, regardless of whether you have a good team or a bad team. I mean, you, you could go to the postseason and win the World Series, and you're still going to be just totally exhausted at the end of the year. So it does take a week or two to kind of get your bearings back and kind of, you know, sit back into the family life. But yeah, we would do that. I would, you know, whether it was take kids, go see Santa Claus or do the Christmas shopping or do the regular shopping, you know, you had to kind of uh, make up for it. But you know what? At that point, you wanted to because you kind of wanted to slip back into a normal lifestyle at that point. And so you did that until March rolled around and then you started the whole thing all over again. We're talking with Mario and Pemba. He's a longtime Major League Baseball announcer, and he's got a new book out called Major League Mindset. Now, Mario, I want to touch base with you here shortly on what you've been up to as far as broadcasting goes. But with this book, you've kind of taken on a mentorship role. What is it like to know that you've been able to take those lessons and all those experiences that you've had with baseball and pass it on to the next generation? Well, it's, it's really cool. And, you know, I, I got a note the other day uh, via LinkedIn from uh, a girl who, who had started calling ball games with the USPBL, the, um, the Independent Baseball League here in uh, the Detroit area. And she got a chance to call two games. And she said, hey, you know, I've, I've listened to you as a kid my whole life. I'm wondering if you could listen to my stuff, look at my demo and, and tell me what you think. And she said, it's going to be really raw and really bad, but I want your opinion anyway. I said, sure, setting the lawn. So I looked at it and I thought she was terrific. I really did. I mean, for her, her level of experience, she was very, very good. And so I sent her a critique back and some things that she might want to work on and look at. And, um, and she sent me a note back saying, thanks so much. But the one line that really kind of stood out to me was, I really appreciate you taking the time to help the next generation of announcers become the best they can be. And that in a nutshell was why I'm doing this. And, and that kind of made me smile because I'm not doing this to sell books. I'm not going to make a lot of money on this book. I'm not going to make any money on this book probably when, you know, when you look at the costs involved in it, that, that's not the point. The point is I didn't have this coming up and I want kids to have this coming up. And there are so many young kids, you know, whether in the high school level or the college level, or even in the minor leagues at this point that can really benefit from, I think what I've learned that, um, I'm just, I'm happy to do it. And that's, that's the reason I'm doing it. The one thing that, that I'm, I'm finding with all these tapes that people are sending me is that, holy cow, they are much more advanced than I was at their age. And, you can tell, I mean, the, the amount of work that some of these kids are putting into getting better and 
and trying to, to find that one piece to make it incrementally better and then find that next piece. Um, and that's what I like to teach people. I'm, you know, I, I can write down 10 things you've got, you've got to get better at, but you can't do them all at once. You've got to master your number one, then go on to number two, then go on to number three. And before you know it, you know, you're through the list and now you are an infinitely better announcer or better prepared announcer than you were maybe, you know, a month ago or two months ago. And I think it's important. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's what I love doing, man. I just, I love listening to people just get better and better. And, and, and let me say this, I am not the end all be all to broadcasting. I'm just another voice. I, you know, I'm, I want people to know that, that I'm trying to help them. This is just my opinion. And this is how I would do it. I encourage them to talk to as many people as possible to get as many ideas as possible. You know, my ideas aren't necessarily right for everyone. It worked for me, but it may not work for you. But I at least want to expose you to the fact that this is how I did it. It worked. Give it a shot. If it doesn't work, go on to the next announcer and see what they think and, and move on. You used a word a little while ago that sums that up perfectly, and that is subjective. The word subjective is one that they're going to hear a lot because, like you said, it's it's your opinion, it's your take on things, but somebody else could watch that same thing and have the complete opposite opinion of what you're saying. It's It's so crazy how this business is. You know, you think you may have something really good, and you may have people tell you how good it is, but then... Somebody who's actually doing the hiring might watch it and have a completely different opinion. I know that's happened to me numerous times throughout my career, and I'm sure you had to deal with that too. Oh, absolutely. And you'll continue to deal with it, you know, in your career. I mean, I remember uh, a couple of years ago, we we're in the booth and somebody hit a young announcer had sent me uh, a tape to critique. And so I was in the booth with another announcer in the big leagues. And I said, Hey, let's look at this, t- uh, this tape. This, this kid wants me to critique a thing. So we played the tape and it was about a two, two, two minute, 30 second highlight reel of, of some baseball. And, you know, I looked at him and said, what do you think? And he said, nah, I don't know. He, you know, I, I just don't think, you know, based on the sound, I don't think he's, you know, he's very good. And I said, well, why do you think that? Because I don't know. I mean, it's just an overall feeling. I said, well, I disagree. I think at the level he's at right now, listen to the way he had technically mastered some of the more difficult plays to call it, bases loaded triple. That's not easy because you've got to be able to identify the ball, identify the runners, go back to the ball, go back to the runners. I mean, technically there are some concepts that you've got to be able to follow. And although he wasn't very smooth at that point, he was able to follow those those technical concepts of calling a play. And so I said, man, there's something to work with here. There's a baseline here that this kid has that you're not you're not hearing or you, you don't want to hear. And so everybody's ear is different. And that's why I say have as many people as possible listen to your work because what I might think is good some other person might not think it's very good and, and, and you'll deal with that along the way. But I think the point you raise about, you know, people that, that are in suits that are in the front office that are making these decisions don't necessarily make them with an educated ear because they haven't been in the booth. They haven't done it. You know, they're just, they may, they may go by sound of your voice. Yeah. That's a pleasant voice. He's good. Well, maybe he's got a pleasant voice, but he's not a very good announcer. Or maybe he's got an average voice, but he's a very good announcer. 
you know, there, there are a lot of things to, uh, to consider when you evaluate people. Coming up, who had the biggest influence on Mario and Pemba wanting to be a broadcaster? Who has the best student section in Michigan? Henry Ford II! North Coast Cider Works is the place to be for hard cider in Oakland County. Located in the main entrance to Canterbury Village, Fourth Coast is quality craftsmanship, quality hard cider. Stop by Fourth Coast and try some of their many flavors on tap. You can also take some home in a can or a howler. Fourth Coast is open Thursday through Sunday. For a complete list of ciders and hours, go to fourthcoastciderworks.com. The best hard cider is on the fourth coast. And that's a Duff Said. Support for a Duff Said comes from you, the listener. It also comes from people like Bethany and Michelle, who recently became patrons of this podcast. And you can too. For as little as $2 a month or $24 a year, you can help a Duff Said continue to grow and continue to provide the great content that you've come to expect from me each week. And if you're a patron, you get access to exclusive content that sometimes doesn't make it into the show. So just go to patron.podbean.com backslash a Duff said. Well, if he hits one out right here, huh? Sale goes to work. talk now about your career in general when you were actually considering a job in this business I think a lot of people they hear certain things or they see certain things that draw them in for you personally what was it about sports broadcasting that interested you and when did you first decide that this is the career for you because like you said there was no plan b for Mario and Pemba this is what you always wanted to do but when did you first discover it well, I think uh, the introduction to my book um, pretty, pretty much says how that happened. You know, I grew up in Detroit. I had, uh, I think, the first two lines of the book. I'm, I'm trying to do this by memory. I, I grew up with vivid memories of driving down I-75 to Tiger Stadium, you know, and I had Ernie Harwell on the pregame show. And just listening to his voice and the sound of the crowd in the backdrop, the sound of the beer vendors, um, and listening to Ernie set up the game, I just, I was mesmerized, man. I, it was just so cool. And there are so many people like me that grew up and had their radios on the, under their pillow and pulling in games from all over the country. I used to listen to Jack Buck. I used to listen to Brickhouse in Chicago. Mark Holtzstown at WBAB in, in Dallas. Man, that was a, a big radio station. We can get their signal. Um, a lot of the Indians games. And so I was exposed to a lot of different um, styles and voice qualities and techniques and all that kind of stuff. I haven't listened to a game like 
the normal kid did, you know, did LK line go two for four today or did he go for four? It really didn't matter to me that much. What mattered was how Ernie called the game, how Paul Carey called the game. Um, and I would pay more attention to that than anything else. And so at a very young age, I realized, man, this would be, just imagine this, this would be so cool. So I'd, I'd go to Tiger Stadium as a, as a fan and I'd sit in the outfield seats and I'd just stare at the press box and, you know, I could see Ernie Harwell, you know, just setting up his equipment and just, you know, with his headphones on, just calling the game and thinking, holy cow, that'd be great to be in that booth one day. You know, it'll probably never happen, but, you know, a kid can dream. And so I did. And um, so I kind of followed that passion. I mean, like I said, it was it was a long shot. And people need to realize that, yeah, it can be a long shot to get to the big leagues, but, you know, you'll never make it if you don't try and so I, uh, that's when it was born in me when I was a young kid and just continued through my high school years, college years, and eventually as a young adult. You know, kids today have it really easy when it comes to listening to games on the radio. What you just described right there, that's the classic tuning in the signal and hope you can hold it long enough and there's not too much static <laughs> coming in there and stuff. But nowadays, yep. you can either get a subscription to satellite radio or you can go through MLB.com and really dial into somebody. You can listen to out-of-town broadcasts. You can hear what everybody else is doing. I feel like that generation is really lucky in that regards. And how much of an advantage should they be taking with that and really trying to listen to how other people are doing it. You know, Doc, that is a great point because when I would sit there with the AM radio under my pillow, I mean, I would have to wait for maybe 30 seconds, 40 seconds for the signal to come back in. Then I would get like a minute of clean play-by-play and then I would go again. You know, it, it was really frustrating. You're watching the Tigers on Channel 4 growing up and, you know, adjusting the rabbit ears on the TV to get a clearer picture. It's it, it's so different now. And again, it goes back to you have no excuse these days, A, to not be prepared, or B, to understand how others are doing it and to kind of learn from others to see what techniques they use and what terminology they use. Because everything literally is on your phone. And if you can't do it now, then you're just being lazy. And so, yeah, it, it's huge. But, um, but you know what? That was the fun part of it, too. You know, that was that was fun part, you know, being a kid and, and trying to, you know, pull those radio stations in. And when you got it to stick for like five minutes straight, we're so excited, you know, and then here comes the static again. You're like, oh, man. So it, it was uh, it was a blast. But if I had my choice, certainly I'd rather grow up, uh, you know, with the, with the advantages that kids have today. Now, for me personally, I grew up listening to guys like Harry Carey or I listened to his son Skip out of Atlanta because we had the super stations, WTBS and WGN. So that was my introduction into sports broadcasting, was listening to those guys as I was coming up. I really envy you that you got to listen to the days of Ernie Harwell here in Detroit because my first introduction with him wasn't until his last season in 2002 when he was on the Jim Rome show. Romy had him on to talk about his final season with the Tigers, and that's when I heard that famous signature call, and I'm going to do my best Ernie Harwell here, and he stood there like the house on the side of the road and watched it go by. How, how yeah. was that? How's my Ernie? That was really good, actually. I mean, that was uh, that's one of Ernie's, you know, big sayings. And I think he kind of nailed it there. I'd give you, I'd give you a nine out of ten on that. Thank yeah. you. I appreciate that because 
My next introduction, like I said at the beginning, was with Ken Cal listening to Red Wings games because I had satellite radio, so I was able to get the Red Wings games in my hometown in Indiana. I was able to pull them in during their finals run back in 2009, and they always had those Ernie Harwell commercials in between where he was talking about what he's been up to lately with uh, getting people out and moving. I think it was some sort of like Move Michigan plan, and I was like, oh yeah, that's that guy, Ernie Harwell. I remember hearing him back in the day. He's the guy that said that stood by the house on the side of the road and watched it go by. How many times did you hear him say that throughout the years? Well, that one a million times. And Ernie also had another shtick, which I thought was really cool. I'm not really big into shticks for announcers, but for Ernie, this one I thought was really, really cool. And what he would do, and, and kids growing up and people growing up listening to Harwell will know what I mean, and what I'm about to say. But if somebody followed the ball off into the stands, uh, he would pick a random city in, in the state of Michigan and say, and a fan from Kalkaska caught that one. And we would grow up thinking, how in the world does Harwell know that if that fan is from Kalkaska or Marquette or Houghton or Sterling Heights or whatever? Um, and I thought that was part of the endearing um, legacy that Ernie left. I mean, that's why he was so loved by so many different generations. And when you think about Harwell, Here's a guy that grew up in the South. Uh, he's got that, you know, that gentlemanly Southern demeanor. And here he is. He comes to Motor City, which is more of a, you know, a blue collar, gritty town. And people just accepted him immediately. Um, and that's kind of hard to do. I mean, you know, I know when I went to Boston for the year um, in 2019, the fans in Boston are much different than fans in Detroit were much different than the fans in LA when I worked out with the angels. Um, every area is different. So if you can be an outsider, so to speak, come into a town and capture the fans, uh, you've got a pretty good job. And Ernie did that, even though he wasn't really like a lot of the people around here, he was a, from a much different culture, but man, he fit in beautifully. And, you know, I love that thing with the town, too. In fact, I've got a recording of him calling a game in Seattle where he says, and a fan from Walla Walla will take home that souvenir. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and they say imitation is the most sincerest form of flattery. Skip Carey started doing that, too, in his later years with the Braves because he used to always say a fan from some insert Georgia town here would do that exact same thing. And I, I used to love that. And then when I found out that that was Ernie's stick, I thought, oh, that is really cool. I like that. I know that that was yeah. always something really cool that I thought broadcasters did because it made everybody feel like they were a part of the broadcast. And that's one of the things you really have to do is when you're behind that mic, you have to make everyone feel like they're at that game at that moment, being just as much a part of it, even though they could be hundreds of miles away. What was it like for you to know that you had an audience that was all over the region because you, you threw out towns like Marquette and other places, you're a part of their home every night when you're describing what's going on with Detroit Tigers baseball. Well, even today, now, Duff, you're all over the world with, you know, the MLB app and, and how it's screened on your phones. I mean, we've, we got, um, on an nightly basis, we got messages, you know, through Twitter or whatever social media platform. Hey, listening to you tonight in the UK or, you know, listening in Germany, stationed here in Germany and listening to our Tigers. And so you kind of realize that, oh, man, we're like worldwide now. So um, it is. I mean, it, it it's kind of daunting 
Um, when I went to Boston and did the one year with the Red Sox, nobody obviously knew who I was. I was kind of new there and, and only did one season. But, you know, we get we get messages from up and down the East Coast, you know, all the way up to Bangor, Maine, you know, all the way down to Savannah, Georgia. Red Sox fans just, you know, all up and down the coast would send us messages. And I'm like, wow, this is really pretty cool. I mean, it can be daunting, though. I'm glad we didn't start to realize that until I, you know, had a little bit more experience in, in my career. Because to think about that as a young announcer, you know, I, I remember when the Angels hired me and here I am. You know, I went from Tucson, Arizona, doing AAA baseball to Los Angeles, California. I mean, yes, it was Anaheim, but it's still the LA market. And it was, you know, I got there and I thought to myself, man, this is great. My first big league job, this is unbelievable. And then I thought, holy cow, can I do this? I mean, th there are going to be a lot of people listening to me on a nine-year basis. And I hope I don't, you know, what the bet. And so, you know, I, you, you learn how to deal with it. You learn that um, just like, you know, when players step on a basketball court, the dimensions are always the same. It's the same in, in baseball and in the broadcast booth. It might be a bigger stadium. There won't be more people listening to you. There might be more people in stands, but it's still the same business of calling a ball game and the athletes are just better. That's all. So um, once you realize that, you kind of settle in. It, it didn't take long. Speaking of which, what do you remember about your first game ever that you were behind the mic for? What was the game and how would you rate yourself behind the mic describing what was going on that night? At the major league level? Or, or any level for that matter. Just, you know, whatever um, game you first did. What, what okay, was the first I'll, game you I'll, were ever doing? Yeah, the first one of any consequence was my first ball game in Peoria. So it would have been my first year in Able, my first year of calling professional baseball. So it's Peoria against Springfield, Cubs affiliate versus Cardinals affiliate. I'm in mine infield in Peoria, Illinois. It's my first game. We've got my equipment all set up. And I get on the air. And before I got on the air, one of the writers, local writers from Peoria, from Journal Star, there said, hey, my name's Phil Theobald. Glad to meet you. If you ever need anybody to do some color commentary or just help you fill in or whatever, just let me know. I said, great. I was so nervous. I'm like, I barely remembered the guy. I'm like, yeah, okay, thanks. And so... I set up the equipment and we get it to the game and second inning it starts to rain. And I'm thinking, oh man, please don't delay this game. And sure enough, it started raining so hard the tarp came out. Well, in those days, there was no sending it back to the studio. It was still the rain delay. So I called my new buddy, Phil Theobald, to the Peoria Journal Star over there and we chatted for, you know, 35, 40 minutes, rain stop. They got the tarp off the field. Game continues. We get to the seventh inning, starts to rain again. And, you know, now I'm, I'm kind of like freaking out because now I've got to fill another, you know, who knows how long. So Phil looks at me and I said, yep, come on over here. I kind of gave him a look in my eye. And so he came over. We filled some more time. And so rain stops, game ends. The game took it was about a three-and-a-half-hour game without the rain delays. It was a slowly, poorly played ball game. By the time I was done, I was on the air for about five hours. And I remember putting my headsets down, and I'm thinking, I've got 141 more of these to go. <laughs> How in the world am I going to do this? And so at that point, I decided 
I can't do this. I'm going to walk into the boss's office tomorrow and say thanks, but I can't do this. And so I'm wrapping up my equipment. Theobald comes over and he says, hey, man, thanks for getting me on tonight. I said, you're thanking me? I said, you saved my hide for coming over here. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. And we'd become really good friends. But, you know, I told him that. I said, man, I don't know if I can do this. And he didn't even know me at that point yet and said, yeah, you can. You know, it's baseball. You'll learn how to deal with the grind of baseball. Don't worry about it. Just come back tomorrow. Do it again. You'll feel better. It'll be a better game. And I did. And it was a better game. It was a quicker game. I was a little bit better on the air. And, you know, that led to, you know, my first season in the books. And I thought, yeah, that was pretty exhausting, but I think I could do this. Um, but that's that was my, my baptism in professional baseball. It was it was pretty bad. It was a bad game. It was two rain delays, and I don't know how I did it looking back right now, but I did it. I am so thrilled that you brought up Peoria because my play-by-play days were not as lengthy as yours. I did it for a couple of years in college with Indiana State University, but then after a few years, I found television. It kind of found me too, so I kind of fell in love with that and doing radio, so... I didn't really do play-by-play as long. I did it for an entire season in 1999 with the Sycamores, but my baseball play-by-play career was very brief. But can you guess where my first game behind the mic for play-by-play doing college baseball was? Um, well, let's go with Indiana State. I mean, that's, that's it was the, an Indiana uh, State game, but it was in Peoria, Illinois, the same ballpark that you got started in. Yes, against Bradley. No yes. kidding. Yeah, absolutely. It was uh, minefield. Yeah, and it was it was April of nineteen ninety eight. It was a weekend doubleheader series with Indiana State. I was super excited, but I probably did not do as much homework as I should have. It turned out to be a very long weekend of baseball. <laughs> you you were lucky. You you just had a rain delay you had to talk to. I had to try to describe a series in which it was just as windy as it was yesterday in Metro Detroit. It was that kind of windy in April and balls are just flying out of the ballpark. It was a long day. Give you an idea of what that weekend was like, Mario. There was one game, it was a seven-inning game of that four-game series, just seven innings, and that final score was 18-17, to Indiana State. Like I said, balls were flying out of the ballpark, and oddly enough, the last game of that series was uh, won by Bradley 5-1, to but it was just a crazy weekend, and I was, I was brand new, so you could clearly tell I'd never done it before, I'd never been on my own before doing baseball. You know, I... I probably did not do as well as I should have. And I'm glad tapes do not exist of that series because it it, (laughs) it was so bad. But I will say that I learned from it. You know, I picked up a lot of experiences. I knew what I had to do to get better. And I worked at it. And like you said, prep goes a long way into making a successful broadcaster. So to all the younger kids listening to this, make sure you do put in the time for it. Well, I will say this, you know, college baseball can be difficult. I mean, I did my share of it at MSU, and even despite doing college baseball, I still wanted to do baseball as a career. I mean, it can be really, really hard. The aluminum bats, the scores are high, the, you know, the talent level certainly is not at a professional level, but um, I learned to love the game. My son went on to play college baseball and learned to 
to really love the college level, um, but it can be a challenge to broadcast. And you know, I will say this: I don't know, I don't know who who this quote was originally uh, uh, credited to, but um, it's like you know, you win and you learn something. You never lose. You know, you either win or you learn something. And so I kind of view it as, as that too. When I had like a bad broadcast and everything went wrong and, and I'm talking about any level, whether it was doing college baseball or, or a game at Yankee stadium and everything just went wrong. I didn't lose really. I, I learned something. I learned how to, you know, kind of adjust the next time and what not to do. So I think it's important for, you know, young kids to kind of take that view as well, because you are not going to be perfect every night. And believe me, I chased it. I chased the perfect broadcast every single night. I never got it. And nobody will ever catch it. You will never, ever be perfect. It's, even Vince Scully has not done a perfect broadcast for as good as he wants. Um, and he will tell you that. Um, so just be as consistent as you can. Learn something and, and uh, move on from it. But, yeah, it, it'll, it'll test you. It'll, it'll be a challenge. Now, I know you said you don't really like shtick. That's not really your thing. But as you're coming up through the minor leagues, was there anything that you really wanted to make a significant signature part of what you were doing behind the mic? Were there any signature calls or little catchphrases or mannerisms that you wanted to bring out in every broadcast or something that you wanted to make exclusive to you? Not really. I didn't, you know, I was never one of those guys stuff that said, I want people to think of me when they hear this phrase. And I, you know, I just, I, I was number one, I was kind of oddly cast in this business, to be honest with you, because I never really liked attention. I don't like attention. And it, it, it was uncomfortable, you know, when people would come up to me in, in the hotels and say, Hey, I heard the broadcast last night. Can you sign my program? It was uncomfortable for me to do that, but I did it because, you know, here's this person asking me for my signature. You better give it to them. And so I, I appreciated it, but it was always uncomfortable um, for me. So I, I kind of took that approach on the air. I never really kind of, you know, did the goofy stuff. And I, I remember in Detroit, somebody hit a big home run and I, you know, I won a game and it was dramatic. And I, to be honest with you, it was so long ago. I can't remember what the, you know, what happened, but I remember saying, holy cats. In the air toward left field, that ball is going to get down and go all the way to the wall. Two runs are in. Here comes Kisler. He will score. Mabin cleans the bases, and the Tigers have the lead. Holy cats, it is a 10-7 ball game. And that night, holy cats started trending on Twitter. And I'm thinking... Are you kidding me? So they're like, man, you got to make that your signature call now. Say that after every home run. And I'm like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Well, every now and then I would throw it in there and people would absolutely love it. When I said it, I could never figure out why. It's just like, it's a dumb saying. It's who cares? Um, but it showed me that people love that stuff. And it gets back to Ernie. People love when he would, you know, say a, a man from Madison Heights caught that ball. Uh, or long gone and it's home run call. Um, but that really wasn't me. I was more of a kind of, you know, straight down the line type of broadcaster. I wanted to be as smooth as possible, as professional as possible. And that sometimes got me into trouble because I got labeled as a vanilla announcer. 
uh, early on in my career. Yes, he's got a nice professional sound and it's smooth, but, you know, give me something here. And so I learned over the years that you got to, you've got to kind of break the mold a little bit and do some things that you're not comfortable with. And I think I, I started doing a few of those things, but ultimately you've got to be who you are and you can't be someone else. I can't be the storyteller that Vince Scully was. I can't be the showman that Harry Carey was, you know, I can't be the wordsmith that Scully was I maybe mean, you've got to be who you are. Um, and that's kind of what I tried to do. For a brief time, when I was calling baseball, I had one. I had one signature call. Anytime someone hit a home run, I would always go, it is high, it is deep, it is gone, home run. And I thought, wow, that was so clever. I really thought uh, I had something there. And then I found out Sterling over at uh, in, with the Yankees does that. And I was like, <laughs> oh, yeah, oh, okay. Well, I guess I, guess I wasn't very creative after all. But the problem with that, Duff, is that not every home run hit is high and deep. I mean, there are some wall scrapers. There are some line drive home runs. And so if you try and fit every home run to a box, it's not going to always work. Now, I know Sterling would do it anyway. He wouldn't care. And and that was John. Um, and it worked for him. But uh, that's why I never really wanted to create a home run call. I, I got called into a real quick story, the, the – office of the director of broadcasting with the angels when i was there i'd been there for a couple of years they had just hired a new um broadcast manager i think that's what they called him to oversee the broadcast he calls me in one day and says hey man you're doing a great job i really love listening to you but i i've got one critique you know would you would you mind listening to it i said bring it on i love it man i, I want to get better and he said well you need a home run call all the great announcers have a signature home run call and I said, well, I don't really agree with that because every home run is different and you can't throw every home run into the same mold. And he said, well, just give it a shot. Just tell me that you'll give it a shot. And I said, well, all right. You know, so I went home that night and I'm trying to think of, well, you know, well, how can I call home runs? I mean, it, it, it just, I couldn't think of any catchphrases, but what it did to me was every time the ball was hit in the air now, I would freak out and just couldn't get overly excited. So I was now calling pop-ups as home runs and it totally screwed me up. It totally messed me up because I had this guy in the back of my head saying, you've got to make home runs the greatest event in the history of mankind and find a way to do it. And so it messed me up for a while. And two weeks later, I walked into his office and said, it's not working. Man. I can't, I can't do this. And he said, no, I agree. You gotta be who you are. It's just, you know, continue to do what you do. And so I learned something there that, you know, you can't, you can try things. I'm not, I'm not telling people not to try things, but recognize that if it doesn't work and it's not you, then it doesn't work and it's not you and move on. And you're talking about great moments and throughout your career, you've had some great moments that you were behind the mic for, but there was one I never got a chance to listen to. And I would love to get your uh, take on it. When you were with the Angels in 95, that was your first year with them, and they played a series in mid-September in Baltimore. You were there for the night that Cal Ripken broke Lou Gehrig's consecutive game streak. What was it like going into that night, knowing that not only were you going to be behind the mic for a pivotal game for the Angels, because they were in a pennant race at that time, but you also got to be there for something truly magical and historical that actually took several minutes to play out? 
Yeah, and what people don't realize or what people forget about that whole series is you're right. The Angels were in a pennant race. They were in the process of blowing a 12-game lead in the month of August. They had a 12-game lead late that month. And we rolled into Baltimore, and I don't remember what it had gotten down to, but it was, you know, low single digits uh, in the lead for the division. So we had to contend with that, where the, the Angels were in a free fall and trying to, you know, talk people off the ledge and that the team's going to be okay. And then, oh, by the way, here's a record that has stood forever that's about to be broken. Um, the way the, the innings were divvied up in those days, Bob Starr, who was the lead announcer, late Bob Starr, who, uh, I thank God every day. He was the first announcer I worked with in the big leagues. He was such a good guy, such a great announcer, so welcoming to me. I mean, he was in his 60s and I was in my 30s, but he treated me like I was an equal. Um, he was the lead guy. And so he would do the first three, I'd do the middle three, he'd do the last three. Well, when the game becomes official going to the bottom of the fifth, I would have been on the mic for that. And so I rolled in the day of of the record-breaking game. And I talked to our producer. Um, his name was Kurt Daniels, longtime producer for the Angels. And, you know, I say, Kurt, I, I think that Bob should be calling this moment, even though it's my inning. And he goes, I agree. Let's approach him when he gets here and tell him that you want him to call the inning. And so Bob rolls in the booth. And I said, Bob, I don't feel comfortable calling this fifth thing. Why don't you take it and you'll do it. Now, keep in mind, this is my first year in the big league. So, you know, in terms of where I was at the end of my career, I was still kind of raw. Um, so I didn't want to take a, uh, an event like that and, and, and butcher it. So, uh, you know, part of it was selfish. You know, like, Bob, you, you do this. I don't want to do it. Um, but I felt that he should do it anyway. And so Bob said, no, no, no. You know, this is your chance to kind of make your mark. You do the sitting. I said, Bob, I really would feel comfortable if you would do it because you're the senior member. You've been in the big leagues for 30 years now, and you, you should do this. And he finally agreed. And when he did, um, I just – I remember turning my mic off when, you know, when the game became official, they unfurled the banner on right field. and You know, Ripken's taking his walk around the ballpark, his victory lap. And I just remember turning my mic off and just just staring at Bob and listening to him call this event. And it was just like the greatest piece of radio that I had ever heard. He was so eloquent. Um, his voice was just mesmerizing. He had this deep baritone voice. And he did what he was supposed to do. He, You know, his, his talent was made for moments like that. And... So I remember just sitting there listening to him going, I am so glad he is doing this right now instead of me. Um, but I got to call the night where he tied it the night before. Um, but as I said, the next day we went in and I said, Bob, you, you got to call the record breaker. And he did. And it was, uh, it was unbelievable. It was a great event. Just looking back at that moment and your entire time with the Angels, what was that whole experience like? And how did you first uh, get that job? Did they reach out to you or did you reach out to them or did you guys just kind of find each other? Um, well, in 1993, it was my seventh year in the minor leagues. I had done three years in Tucson. I decided I'm going to take a tape and I'm going to send it to every major league team and see what happens. So I put a tape together, sent that out to every major league team. The three teams wrote back and said, hey, nice stuff. 
but we don't have an opening. And one of those teams was the Angels. They said, we really like your tape, but we don't have an opening this year. Well, 94 rolls around the very next year, and they fired Billy Sample, uh, who was their number two announcer. And they called me in and said, hey, we'd like to have you come in um, based on your tape that you sent us last year for an interview. Can you send us some updated stuff? And I did, the Summity tape. And they said, well, come on in for an interview. And I thought, holy smokes. So, all right, I got an interview with the Angels. So I fly into L.A., rent a car, and drive up La Cienega to KMPC Radio. And, you know, they got the armored uh, armed guards there, and they've got the gates up. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh, this is big time now, man. I'm walking to the L.A. radio station. You're walking through the metal detectors. And it sounds so like you're entering a this- prison. Yeah, it, it, you know, I, I kind of looked at it going, oh, this is the big time now, man. you got to have guns to be able to go to this building. But, um, so I, I walk in there, and I'm sitting down for this interview. And, and believe it or not, I am not nervous in the least because I knew I'm not getting this job. I'm using this as a way to kind of build my knowledge base on how to interview for a big league job. I knew I wasn't getting the job. I'm just going in. Let's learn something. here. So I sit down and we're going through the interview. And the first thing the guy says is that the program director says, look, you know, we really like your stuff, but understand that we've got other big league guys interviewing for this job. We've got guys from ESPN, from CNS sports. We've got a lot of big time guys coming in, but, just so you know, going in, we like your stuff, but the odds are pretty long. And I'm like, yeah, I, I understand. I'm just thrilled to be here. What do you got? You know, and so we interviewed for about 30 minutes. And I go back, catch my flight back to Tucson. I I remember getting off the plane in Tucson. I pick up one of the pay phones, call my wife and said, uh, you know, hey, I'm, I just got back to town. I'll be home in 30 minutes. She said, uh they just called they want to set up a second interview and i thought what this can't be right so i get home and i call them back and they said yeah we'd like you to come in and interview with bob star and just kind of you know kind of meet bob and have lunch with him i'm thinking all right if i'm going in to have lunch with the lead guy this is more than just a second interview and so i did i had lunch with bob we had a great lunch and the director of broadcasting for the team and program director for the radio station both pulled me aside and said, you had no shot going into this interview process, but you out interviewed every single guy here. And so that's why we want you, we want to make you an offer. And, you know, I, I thought to myself, this, this just can't be happening because in my mind, I was getting this job. I wasn't prepared to, to go to the big leagues. I thought I'd need probably another year to, you know, get better, hone my craft a little bit more. And so we talked from then. I got back uh, on the phone with them the next day. We talked numbers, and they said, we want to give you a three-year contract. You'll be Bob Stars number two. Uh, understand that Bob is in his 60s. Don't know how much longer he'll be doing it. Um, but, you know, things go well. Uh, you could land as the lead guy here in, you know, maybe five, 10 years. Who knows? And so now I'm freaking out. I'm like, okay, great. Yeah. So I took the job and, you know, that's when all the doubts started setting in. Holy cow, am I really ready for this? 
you know, I've got to take it. I've got to move my family out to LA. We've got to do this. Um, but am I ready? And turns out I was, I guess. And we got there and, uh, you know, I spent seven years with the Angels and then came to Detroit. Up next, Mario comes home. Who has the best student section in all of Michigan? Unicorn! Winter is here in the state of Michigan, but hard cider is good for all four seasons. Looking for the best hard cider in Oakland County? Then stop by 4th Coast Cider Works. Located in the main entrance to Canterbury Village, 4th Coast has many flavors on tap and some you can take home. Now if you're like me and you like testing your useless trivia knowledge against others, then come on down to 4th Coast on Thursday evenings for Trivia Night. 4th Coast is open Thursday through Sunday. For a complete list of ciders and hours, go to 4thCoastCiderWorks.com. 4th Coast Cider Works. Quality craftsmanship. Quality hard cider. And that's a Duff said. Once again, I want to say thank you so much for hitting the play button on this podcast. And that includes two very special listeners, Michelle and Bethany. They recently became patrons of a Duff said. Now, for as little as $2 a month or $24 a year, you can help this show to continue to grow and provide the content that you enjoy. And if you become a patron of A Duff Said, we have got a lot of great gifts in store for you. We've got bumper stickers. We've got t-shirts. Heck, I'll even record your voicemail message. So if you're having trouble ever figuring out what to say, I'll say it for you. And that's A Duff Said. If you'd like to become a patron of A Duff Said, all you got to do is go to patron.podbean.com backslash A Duff Said. Driven in the air toward left field. That ball is deep. That ball is way back. And it's a game winner. He walked him off. Grand slam home run. Rajay. How did you manage to get back to Detroit? Was that something that uh, you've been hoping would happen, or were they actually interested in uh, bringing you back home? Well, I had two two dreams, really. One was to call Big League Ball, and the other was to do it in my hometown. And so when the Tigers' job opened up, Josh Lewin had moved out to the Texas Rangers. And again, it was like, I'll never get this job because I don't have enough TV experience. I had done maybe... I don't know, six to eight games over the seven years I was in Anaheim, uh, maybe more than that, probably 10 or 12 games, filling in for our regular guy who did college football, uh, you know, in September. So I'd pick up some weekend games on TV with the Angels and just kind of got my feet wet and did, did a few games. But I didn't have a, a lot of TV tape, so I just sent him what I had. But I figured I had to do it because it was Detroit. I wanted to get back to Detroit. And – so I interviewed with uh, the Tigers. They rolled me in. Kurt Gibson was the uh, color analyst at that point. And uh, we did a couple of uh, innings in a studio in Troy, Michigan, 
off the monitor. It was, as luck would have it, it was an Angels-Tigers game, so I knew all the Angels players. And, uh, you know, we did a couple of innings play-by-play. I thought, yeah, that went pretty good, but I'm not going to get this job. And, again, they called me and said, hey, we'd like to make you an offer. And so I was thrilled to come back home and spend the next 17 years of my career, um, you know, in the Tigers booth, which was obviously a dream come true. And what's really special about that first year in 2002 is that's Ernie's last season with the Tigers, and you're a few doors down from him. What was that like getting that chance to be in the same vicinity with Ernie doing the job that you've been working so hard to get? Well, remember when I said, you know, you got, you've got to constantly be learning from other people. That's what I used Ernie for. He was a great mentor and I would watch how he would act on the team flights. I would watch how he would interact with players in the locker room and on the field. I would watch how he would prep for a game. And yes, this was later in his career. So he has slowed down quite a bit and his prep really wasn't as, you know, as, as much as it was earlier in his career, but I still learned a lot of things. And as, as luck would have it, our uh, analyst got, injured his back and so he couldn't make um he couldn't do a a game that night and so they said let's get ernie to do it and so ernie agreed to broadcast a game with me on fox and it happened to be the day the yankees were in town roger clemens was going for his 300th win so uh, like the stars were aligning the ballpark was full it was a 75 degree day in detroit and here's Ernie Harwell sitting next to me in, in the Fox booth. And we're doing this game, and I'm like, this is like Nirvana for me. I mean, this is like checking all the boxes. My hometown team, home ballpark, full crowd, beautiful day, and here's Ernie Harwell sitting next to me. And the game went 17 innings. And I thought, oh, my goodness. So, you know, when you're prepping for a nine, and nobody preps for a 17-inning game, by the way. That's almost two games. It is two games. And so, you know, they did two seven-inning stretches. And so it was like, holy moly. Um, so I had to keep not – I had not only called the game, but I had to keep Ernie involved. And that became difficult because I had no clue we're going 17 innings. So I used a lot of the prep that I had, you know, put together about his career and, you know, his time with the Tigers. And we would blown through all that, you know, by the seventh inning. So now we got 10 more innings of baseball on the call. And, you know, I remember just kind of like sitting back going, you know what? Screw the prep. Let's just, <laughs> let's just do the game. You know what? Let's just do the game. And that's yeah, cause you've shot all your bullets at that point. At the, I had nothing left. And so really I had no choice, but to just, Hey man, I'm sitting here with Ernie Hartwell. Let's, you know, it's kind of like having a beer call in a game. And that's what we did for the next 10 innings. And, it was a day that I will never, ever forget. I mean, I've got pictures of it in my office, and it's, uh, it, was, it was just like, yeah, nobody said ever had it this good. It was, it was really cool. That is an amazing story. I mean, how many people get that chance to actually work no with the people that I, they idolize? No one, exactly. No one. Yeah, that is crazy. So I'm glad that you got that experience because – You know, like you said, no one really gets that opportunity, but you got that in your first year with Detroit, and there would be several more magical moments that you got to be a part of with the organization during your time there. 
But let's talk a little bit about those first couple of years because they were a disaster for the Detroit Tigers. They were a perennial loser and they reached historical levels of badness in 2003. But like you said, you got to talk people off the ledge when it comes to being a broadcaster. And that year, I don't know how you would have done it because that was just an awful team. But you still had to go out and sell the Detroit Tigers to the home crowd as somebody they needed to follow and keep track of. When you're doing something like that, what advice do you give to some of the younger people? And maybe you've touched on this in your book too, but about calling games for a team that is perennially bad because you're not going to always get those teams that are really good. You're not going to get a team that's got a Miguel Cabrera and a Justin Verlander on it. You may have a, a team made up of younger guys and aging veterans who are at the end of their career and the result could be 120 losses. So how did you make it through that season and what advice would you give to people who have to call teams that uh, you know rack up that many losses? Well, I've got a um, chapter in my book called They're Not All a Picasso. And I learned that phrase from a guy that I broadcasted with, a, a colleague of mine in minor leagues. He was perennially broadcasting a bad team. And he would say to me, he goes, Mario, you know, I come to the ballpark every night and I fill out my score sheet and I put in my notes and it looks like a beautiful painting. And by the third inning, the team is crapped all over my painting. And so... <laughs> It, that's what it was like for us in 2003. Every night we were down six nothing going to the third, and you know the the Picasso was crapped all over again. And so you had to figure out how to make it interesting. And I look back at that year, and believe it or not, I am so thankful for that year. I know Tigers fans aren't, and I wasn't thankful for the results, but I was thankful for what it did for my career because it forced me to find a way to make it interesting. You know, when you do as many games as we do, you kind of follow this template every night. Okay, wake up, do your prep, go to the ballpark, do the game, go home. Well, when you're waking up, going to the ballpark, doing the game, and the game is crappy, you've got to find a way to engage people. And so it kind of took me out of the comfort box, and we had to find ways, not only me, but us as a crew, to make these games more interesting. And I think it developed a set of skills that I probably would not have developed had we not had that season because a, we had no star power, none, zero. We had, we had none. And so we had nobody to hang our hat on B. We didn't have dynamic guys in the locker room that would give us a good quote every now and then zero didn't have any of that. So we'd have to come to the ballpark tonight and say, all right, we're playing the Yankees. We'll be down eight nothing by the second inning. How do we make this sound good? And so we strategically had to figure out the best elements of our broadcast and get them in quick. Because if you wait for later in the game, it's going to be over and people will be tuned out. So we found a way to find the best parts of our prep that night and kind of develop them early in the game and enhance them as the game one went along. And I think we learned how to keep people engaged, even though we're down, you know, 10-6 or 6-2 or whatever. Um, you know, we've leaned on the minor leagues. We leaned on, yeah, we don't have a third baseman right now, but there's this kid Toledo that look out. 
you know, or there's this kid double A, you know, and, and we would start, you know, highlighting what we had in the minor leagues and what the future was going to look like. It's all we could do. Um, but it forced us to figure out a way to keep people involved in ball games. And had we not had that season, uh, I probably wouldn't have learned a lot of those skills. So I'm, I'm, I was kind of glad for it. And then the big reward comes a few years later when the Tigers turn it all around. They make the World Series. And then guys like uh, Justin Verlander hit the scene and become a Cy Young Award winner. And then you had Miguel Cabrera come up and win a Triple Crown and become one of the game's best hitters. And then the division titles and everything else starts rolling in. Every night, people are starting to tune in once again to Tigers baseball. And you're in their homes. You're in all those different areas of Michigan and the surrounding region talking about Detroit Tigers baseball. What was that run like to watch that start out and then ultimately become what it did? Well, it's crazy. I mean, we went from zero to hundred miles an hour right away. We went from the worst team in the, in, in the game to, you know, three years later being in the world series and signing guys like Pat Rodriguez and, you know, Ron L. White and getting a thing turned around and Kenny Rogers and, you know, he came on and all of a sudden we were not only it, but we're winning games. And now, oh my God, we're going to the world series. But I remember a series in 06 interleague series at the Wrigley field in Chicago. Um, we went in packed crowds, day games, all three games and a ton. I mean, a ton of Tigers fans. And they pretty much took over Wrigley field and, you know, Granderson let off game one with a single, let off game two with a double, let off game three with a triple, and we went on a roll for three games. And I remember walking out of the stadium to the team bus, and Tigers fans were just surrounding the team bus, just, you know, the screaming, the yes, let's go Tigers chants. And, and all the fans were just, they were rabid. I mean, and, and it lasted the entire season. And it really opened my eyes up to the kind of fan base there is here in Detroit when there's a good product. You know, I remember 84 being a kid here and going to the World Series in 84 with Gibby and Parrish and Morris and that crew, and that was cool, but this was on a whole different level. And being able to work it and be in the booth and deliver that product every night, that really kind of was a, a turning point for me and people accepting me because early on in my career here, I really wouldn't accept it all that well. You know, I, I don't think people kind of warmed up to me until the team got good. And I always believe now that, you know, if, if the team is doing well, then you're a good broadcaster. But if the team is not doing well, you're not very good. And that's just the way people perceive you. And you've got to deal with that sometimes. But uh, it was crazy, man. It was, it was nuts, but it was uh, probably a five or six year stretch. Actually more than that from 06 to 12 to 13, where, it was just crazy fun, and it was fun to go to the ballpark every night. One of the lessons that I learned in my sports broadcasting class was there's going to be those moments where you just have to be dialed in and remain professional behind the mic and really keep focused and describe what is happening as it happens and don't get off track. And you had that moment in 2010 when Armando Galarraga was throwing what was clearly a perfect game. And that didn't unfold because the call made it first by Jim Joyce. He called a batter that was clearly out safe. Ground ball, right side. Cabrera will cut it off. Galarraga covers. He's out. No, he's safe. He is safe. 
life. Oh, my goodness, Jim Joyce. No. What an absolute travesty for Armando Galarraga. Bouncing ball left side, Brandon in. I have never been this disappointed after a Tigers win. Oh my goodness. There goes the perfect game, there goes the no-hitter, and it all gets ruined. And everybody in the crowd could clearly tell he was out. When you're describing all that, when that all's unfolding, what's going through your mind at that time? Well, it, it, it's hard to explain. I mean, I don't know because I don't remember what I was thinking at the time. I think what I do recall is is that I was, A, extremely disappointed, um, which quickly turned into anger uh, because here's a guy that was robbed of a perfect game. Here's a stadium full of people that are robbed of seeing history. And quite honestly, if, if I'm telling the truth, it robbed me of calling a perfect game, which would have been the first and only one of my career. Um, but as the whole thing unfolded, there's something that goes off inside of you as an announcer where, you know, you, you've, you've got to realize that this game is played by humans. It is broadcasted by humans. It is umpired by humans. And things like this are going to happen absolutely the wrong time for it to happen but it happened and so you got two choices now you can lose it and pile on it to jim joyce and, and call him the worst umpire in the world and how can this happen he was clearly out or you can remain professional and and try to let people know you're disappointed and upset and angry with what happened but you know you still have to remain professional and you've got a broadcast to complete and so that's the route I took. Um, but I remember thinking to myself as I made the call, um, I said, out. And then I quickly said, no, he's safe when I saw the the, uh, the signal by choice. Well, in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, man, are you kidding me? I screwed up the biggest call of my career because I called him out and he was actually safe. And then we rolled the replays, and I thought, nope, I got it right. But the umpire got it wrong. So I think my initial reaction was, okay, I just blew the biggest call in my life, and I'm never going to get it back. Um, you know, but then we rolled the replays, and I figured out, well, no, I was actually right. And, um, but what are you going to do? I mean, it, it is what it is. I know Jim Joyce. We're not really close friends, but I know him and have talked to him and had – a bit of a relationship with him and he is a class guy a quality umpire and i just hated to see it happen to him but uh it's part of the game and it's part of uh, the heartbreak of the game and one of my favorite stories that came out of that was not long after that armando galarraga and jim joyce shook hands and they made peace with what happened and you don't often see that in some situations there are some players some coaches that they, they look at umpires or referees and they just do not get along at all, especially after a big call that may have made a huge impact in that. But both men had the class and dignity to share that moment. What was it like for you to see that unfold? Well, it wasn't surprising because if you looked at the initial reaction that Colorado had when the call was made, he's kind of tilted his head to the right and smiled. Is it to say, oh, man, 
you know, he didn't blow up. He didn't start screaming and yelling, you know, his teammates did all of that, but the yellow rocket never did. And so that's just the temperament that he had. So I kind of expected that that was going to be his reaction, but you never know. I mean, he had, he had history taken away from him. Um, so you don't know how he's going to react, but knowing the kind of guys that both of them were, you kind of figured they would, this is going to be the final result. And it was. And so I was happy to see it. I, I could see the toll it took on Jim uh, the next day. As luck would have it, he was calling walls and strikes. And so, you know, the umpires have to convene at home plate. And they got to bring the lineup cards out. And Galarraga brought the lineup card out. They shook hands. They cried. And we moved on. I mean, it was, it was just uh, a moving moment that kind of teaches you what humanity can be like at its best. And I think we saw it there. It was a microcosm of, you know, how you should treat people and, and how life is never perfect. I'm curious, were there ever any moments that unfolded for you that uh, put together a really great story for you that we didn't get a chance to witness on television? Well, I would say, you know, I'd go back to 06 um, when the Tigers uh, made it to the World Series and Ordonez hit the home run off Houston Street and, you know, and, and the, the visions of Polanco running around the bases and jumping for joy, you know, with his ski mask on, it was so cold. Um, I did not get a chance to call that game because it's postseason and the big boys take over in the postseason. So we kind of got shoved to the side and Fox National called the game. And so we were relegated really to just pre and post game interviews and analysis and all that stuff, which is cool, but it's not like calling the game. So I remember being in the tunnel um, outside the Tigers locker room in that game with our uh, coordinating producer, Mike Eisenberg at the time. And we were saying, look, if we win this game, we got to run out real quick and, and, and line up some interviews. If we lose or not lose, but if we go to extra innings, um, then we just got to figure out what to do. So we, we're kind of trying to figure out to go to the press box. Do we hang out downstairs? You know, when you, when you have the potential of extra innings, you're kind of caught in the middle there. You don't know what to do. So, we went down, we're hanging out outside the locker room and we're watching this unfold on the monitor outside the locker room. And so Ortonius hits the home run and the whole stadium is shaking like I've never seen it or heard it shake before. And so we quickly run up the ramp and we run onto the field. We figured out we couldn't get through the ramp because the media was just, it was, it was a log jam. So we figured, well, let's go through the stands so Mike and I run through the box seats and we're kind of weaving our way through fans that are just delirious. We get to the railing. I jump over the railing and I look back and there's no Mike. I mean, where's Mike Eisenberg? Where, you know, he's on the ground. He had broken his ankle jumping. Oh, <laughs> I'm, thinking, <no. laughs> I'm thinking, okay, what do I do now? You know, he's on the ground and I'm thinking, oh, this is not good. And so I kind of took the mic. We had another uh, tech with us and he took all the equipment and we kind of ran out there and did these interviews, but I can't explain the feeling of being on a major league field after such a dramatic moment like that. And just grabbing Maglio Ortonios by the arm and interviewing, grabbing, you know, Justin Verlander by the arm and interviewing and just having free reign on the field to do whatever I wanted to do interview whoever I wanted to interview. And it's, it's just pandemonium around you. 
And it, it's just, uh, even though I didn't call the game, it's still one of the highlights of my career because I was able to experience what it's like to really kind of have like true euphoria as a fandom. I mean, I, I wasn't a broadcaster at that point. I was like, damn, this is unbelievable. And so, you know, you got to focus and you got to figure out how you're doing these interviews. Uh, but all your technique goes out the window at that point, man. You're just, you're just trying to get guys and just have them blab into the mic. It really doesn't matter what you ask them. You know, just talk is pretty much the way you do those interviews. And so that's one of the things that I remember that, you know, it's kind of a behind-the-scenes thing that uh, people really don't know a whole lot about. That was probably one of the biggest home runs in Tigers history, and you just witnessed it, and everybody's going crazy. The whole stadium is shaking like you're talking. And you guys are trying to get there and do your job. But at the same moment, you know, what was that like just to see that and to hear the reaction and just the whole moment in general? Well, it happens so fast. And that's that's the bad thing about it, because it comes and goes so quickly. And you don't really have a chance to sit there and soak it in because you've got a job to do. Man, I couldn't just stand there and just kind of like look at it and take it all in. I, I still had a job to do so. It's, it's hard in that respect, but it, it's such a, a memory maker that, you know, you, you figure to yourself, if I do nothing more in this, in this industry, uh, at least I've got this to look back on. And uh, that's how special it was. Not only that, but, you know, every division winning clinching game that we had, we had a string of, what, five or six. I'd walk into Leland's office and my producer would look at me and say, you've got the Leland interview. Time to make him cry. And every time Leland would start crying during our interview because he got so emotional about it. And it, it got to be a joke, you know, that every time we would do a, a post-game interview with Leland, um, you know, the producer's like, you ready to make him cry? I'm like, let's go. And it was uh, it was awesome. I mean, those are the things that, that you remember more than anything else. Just kind of a human element of the game and being part of it and the relationship that I was able to forge with Jim uh, Jim and I became really close friends, and I think a lot of that had to do with those interviews of just sharing a really cool moment together, and, uh, you know, you don't forget that stuff. Do you guys still talk today? We do. Uh, Jim called me a couple of months ago to see how I was doing, and, you know, we, we still kind of check in with each other, and, um, you know, when I left Detroit, he uh, he called me immediately to see how I was doing, and, when I went to Boston, he called me to congratulate me. When I did a spring training game, oddly enough, my first game with Boston was a spring training game in Lakeland against the Tigers. And uh, Leland came in to harass me a little bit there. And so it was much appreciated. He's a, he's a really good man. You had a lot of great memories in your time with the Tigers. And that time ended in a way that I don't think anybody saw coming. I know that you've been low-key in speaking about the confrontation that took place between you and your broadcast partner, Rod Allen. That took place in the broadcast booth in Chicago back in 2018, and that whole situation led to both of you being taken off the broadcasts and ultimately being let go by the network. Looking back on it now, what disappoints you the most with how all of that unfolded? Well, I, I don't think, Duff, it was any secret that Rod and I never really got along. Um, I think we kind of 
tried to tolerate each other. I had issues with the way he went about his business. He had some issues with me. You'd have to ask him about that. I don't, I don't know what his problem was, but um, I think that if I had, if I had to do it all over again, I wouldn't expect everyone to do it the way I do it and put in the amount of time that I put in. I only wanted it to be the best broadcast it could be on a night basis. And by doing that, I had to work hard every night. I wasn't one of those guys that could show up. Joe Buck can literally show up and do a great broadcast. I'm not one of those guys. I need to do my prep. I need to make sure we're, we're ready to go every night. And so I was an extremely hard worker in that respect because I wasn't talented enough to get it done any other way. Um, but I expected everybody to be like that. Maybe that was the wrong way of going about it. Um, it all came to a head in Chicago one night where um, I prefer not to really get into the, the weeds about it, but he put his hands on me and that was the beginning of the end. Um, I thought it was the beginning of the end for him because he put his hands on me. But in retrospect, you have to look out for yourself is what I learned in this business because Everyone's going to see YA, and I think you know what that means, and you're going to cover your, you know what. And so, you know, I found out that we were both uh, suspended, which thoroughly shocked me because uh, of the way the events transpired, but that's life, and you move on. And the thing that I think disappoints me the most is now, years from now, when people are talking about Tiger's broadcasters, they're going to bring my name up and say, oh, what he the guy that got into a fight? Uh, instead of, man, I really like listening to him, or he was pretty good, or he was bad, or whatever. Um, you know, I, I don't know that I'll be judged on my body of work, but instead, the first thing that'll come was his event. And, you know, I, it, 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 it's sad, and maybe it won't work out that way. I don't know. But uh, that's probably the thing that, disappoints me the most um how look man i just showed up every night wanted to bust my ass and do the best i could and i did on a nightly basis and i could hang my head up high because i knew i worked hard every night and i never took a night off and that's a tough thing to do in the big leagues never take a night off you can ask any production person i work with if i ever took a night off and they'll tell you no and so that i'm proud of but unfortunately, it's it's probably not going to be portrayed that way in the end. And, and that's kind of disappointing. Well, I hope people listening to this get a broader perspective of who you were and what you brought to the Detroit Tigers. Like you said, you and Rod did not have the best relationship. But when you're in the broadcast booth working together, did you ever envision that that relationship would boil over the way it did? No. No, not, not in the least. I mean, I had inklings. I mean, there were a few instances where he had said some things to me that you don't do in a professional setting. You might do in a bar after 10 drinks uh, and use the language he used, but not in a professional setting in front of your peers and your coworkers. And so that had happened a couple of times before this incident even took place. And so I kind of have an inkling that, you know, Hey, this is who he is. Just, you know, keep your head down and do your job. But I never thought it would, it would to deteriorate to a point where he would put his hands on me. And unfortunately it did. And I thought that, well, I'm in the right here 
um, he put his hands on me, but that's not how it played out. And, you know, as a result, you know, my 17 year career with them came to an end, but I mean, I've, I've moved on. Um, I prefer to look at my body of work. I prefer to look at all the memories I've made. I prefer to look at the future in writing this book and, and helping young people. And, and to be honest with you, this whole episode will help me counsel younger announcers if they go through something like this. I mean, it's just another building block in my experience. And I could use that to my advantage, and that's what I prefer to do. You know, you, you kind of took the words right out of my mouth there because I was going to say with regards to the book, you know, what does that whole episode uh, say about, you know, building a relationship with the person that you share the broadcast with? Because hopefully there's always going to be an analyst. There are sometimes when guys work by themselves and they have to carry an entire broadcast all alone. But there are times when you are fortunate enough in those lower levels or even in the bigs where you do have a partner or sometimes you have a third person in the booth with you. What does that say for building a relationship with the people that you work with, especially when you have to be on the mic for three hours and you can't let anything that's going on between the two of you carry into the actual broadcast itself? Well, it's critical. I mean, uh, you know, you have to be able to find a way to work with people. And though he and I had our differences, you know, we answered the bell every night. And, you know, we made it the best broadcast, you know, we could. And I've had so many people say, man, I had no idea you guys had difficulties. And I thought, well, that's that was the game plan. That was part of what we do. And that's part of being a professional and, you know, and, and doing your job and, you know, checking all the rest of that crap at the door. And once the game starts, you have to do the game. Um, but it's it's really important, I think. There is a section in there on uh, working with an analyst um, and how critical it is to try and cultivate a relationship where you can work together. And it happens organically sometimes. Sometimes you have to work at it. Um, and every analyst is different, and they're going to bring something different to the game. And so you as a play-by-play announcer have to adapt to that. You have to realize, okay, what does this guy or girl do really well? And how I bring that out. And sometimes I did a good job of that. But sometimes, to be honest, I didn't. Because I just got frustrated. And I had my vision of what it needed to look like. Instead of my vision being, okay, how can we make this work within the the people we have on this telecast? And so that's what I learned. I mean, this this book is full of mistakes I made. And it's it's full of things that I want other kids not to to do. So um, that's just one part of it. After you leave Detroit, you went on to Boston for a short time calling Red Sox games. But uh, we haven't really heard you much on the microphone since. So I'm curious, do you have any plans uh, to get back on the mic here in Michigan or somewhere else with another major league club? I would never say no to that, uh, but right now it's not on my radar. I think that um, I'm kind of enjoying life right now, and I think one thing that uh, the pandemic taught me is hey, it's kind of nice to be home with the family and spending more time with you know my kids who are older now and, and they're out of the house, but I'm able to help them with, with certain things and you know and spend more time with my wife and do things that I like, like like write. I, I love to write, and I have more time to do that now. Um, so I'm kind of tapping into the creative part of my brain and, and utilizing that 
Um, I'll never say I won't, I won't do games again, but it's not on my radar. It's, you know, Duff, I did 33 years of, of professional baseball at every level, minor leagues and major leagues, and it was rewarding. I enjoyed every single day of it, and I hope that anyone that I come in contact can, can reach that goal and I can help them reach that goal. Um, but right now I, I enjoy what I'm doing and, and I'm realizing that there's really more to life than, you know, going to a ball game every night. And, and while, you know, some people still have that passion for it, good for them. Um, but we'll see what uh, the future holds. I'm not sure. Have you been to any tiger games since you left the organization? The only Tiger games I have been to um, was a three-game series that I did with the Red Sox at Comerica Park. And so I had to be there because I was working games, but as a fan, no. I have, I have not been in that ballpark, and, uh, and I honestly probably don't have any plans to going either. So um, that's where that stands. Do you have any certain types of feelings towards the organization, given what happened with them? And is there a way to repair that relationship? Well, I don't know that it's broken. It just is what it is. Um, you know, when Fox decided to let me go, um, there was a statement made by the Tigers that they supported what Fox wanted to do, and that was that. Um, I had hoped there would have been more support, but there wasn't. And I understand why there wasn't, because in the end, you have to look after your own interests. They didn't bring this on. They didn't caused this incident. So I understand why they've got to separate themselves from it. But in the end, um, you know, I've, I've got a feeling on it too. And, and uh, right now I, I just kind of separated myself from, you know, who I was within that organization. And, you know, will I go back to Tigers games? I don't know. I mean, I, I just, I don't know. Uh, at this point, I, every game's on TV. What's the point? You know, so um, I, I enjoy flipping around during the uh, big league season, watching a lot of games, staying involved in the game. But uh, that's basically where it's at right now. I wanted to bring up something else uh, regarding you and the Tigers organization, because your relationship with them went just beyond you and the booth. Not a lot of people know this, but back in 2011, your son, Brett, was drafted by the organization. He actually uh, was picked up in the 49th round. Uh, first off, with that whole situation, as a father, what was that like uh, having that proud moment to share with him? Well, it was really cool. I mean, he had played, uh, you know, he had played high school ball and, and was drafted out of high school, but he knew and I knew that he was not ready for professional baseball. The Tigers knew that as well, but they drafted him anyway. And um, he went on to play in college. But it was, you know, just to have his name called and then having people blow up your phone and say, hey, Brett just got drafted. That's so cool. I mean, it was it was a great um, moment for both of us. I know he had put in a lot of work in the game. Uh, he did so in college as well. He worked hard as, as a kid in college and, you know, had a, had a good career at Oakland University and, you know, had a lot of he had a lot of friends, had a lot of fun, played in some big games and in some, you know, against some big programs and, and it was a blast, but, you know, to see your name called regardless of the round, uh, is pretty cool. And, you know, to be able to share that with him after watching him put on all the work as a kid to become the best player he could be, uh, was kind of rewarding. It was, it was nice. 
Did you have any idea that that was going to happen that way, that the Tigers were actually going to make that call and uh, pick him up? No, to be honest with you, I know Garrett Guest, the uh, the scout who signed, or not signed, but who drafted Brett, um, came to watch him play a couple times and was at a uh, it was at a showcase that Brett played at in Novi. It was one of the bigger showcases that at Santa puts on one of the Colorado Rocky Scouts, and that that's in Novi every year. And so he got invited to that showcase, and and Garrett was there, the Tiger Scout, and. You know, Brett had a pretty good round of BP, and I saw Garrett was there, and Garrett and I talked, but there was never any indication they were going to draft him. I mean, it was just like, hey, you know, nice little player, and he's got a good swing, and okay, great. Thanks for the uh, for the feedback. And, you know, we had settled on the fact that he was going to play college ball, and he knew that there was no way he was ready to be a pro at that time. There just wasn't – he wasn't developed enough. But it was cool nonetheless that they took the time to do it, and – Quite honestly, yes, it was kind of a legacy pick, and I was involved in the in the organization. But still, um, it was nice of them to do that. How was his baseball career? Well, he never really played pro ball. He wanted to play college ball. Um, so he decided that he wanted to play four years, see how that was going to work out. And then if he got drafted again, then he would consider signing in professional baseball. But he realized when he got to college that that was probably the level he was going to top out at. So uh, he never pursued the uh, the pro aspect of it. And what's he up to now? Brett is now back. He is uh, he was an environmental consultant, and uh, in Florida, his wife um, just became a doctor. She just finished med school, and they moved up to Detroit. So she's working at Children's Hospital in Detroit, and uh, so we've got the family all together again now, which is kind of a cool thing too. Well, listen, I have really enjoyed this podcast. This has probably been one of the best shows that I've done, Mario, and I'm thrilled that you were a part of it. And like I was saying a little while ago, I hope that people listening to this get a broader picture of who you were as a major league announcer and what your time in Detroit was really like. You know, I I would hate for it to be clouded by that one incident because you had such a great career with everybody, and now you're taking the time to give people advice on how they can follow in your footsteps. The book is called Major League Mindset. How can people get a copy of it? Uh, well, it's available stuff on Amazon. Simply go to Amazon and search bar. You can either enter my name or Major League Mindset. It's available in ebook or paperback. And uh, we try to make it as affordable as possible. Uh, you know, the young kids aren't making much money in, in, uh, in media when they get going. So, um, it's available there, or you can go to broadcasting, baseballbroadcasting.com, baseballbroadcasting.com, uh, which is my website that I just uh, started uh, a few weeks ago. And we're, you know, we're putting up uh, resources for young announcers, samples of game prep and score sheets, and we're building that out. It's still in the very early stages, but there's a link to buy the book there as well. So those are the, the two ways you can get it. And it's the holidays, so if you're looking for the last-minute gift for the broadcaster in your family, this is the perfect gift. You definitely want to read Mario's book. Well, thanks so much. I appreciate it. It'll make a great Christmas gift for that young, aspiring major league announcer that you know. And uh, really, you can't be too young. Even kids in high school or junior high, they really want to know what the business is all about and what they're in for and what they can do to try and get there. Uh, we'll help them all we can. 
He is Mario Impemba, longtime Major League Baseball announcer. I really appreciate you taking the time, and it's good to finally get to talk to you one-on-one. Well, thanks so much, and I appreciate uh, all the kind comments, and I hope you have a great day. And on that note, that's a wrap on this edition of A Duff Said. Once again, many thanks to Mario and Pemba for making the time this week. We'll have another episode dropping real soon, so be sure to go to my website, aduffsaid.com, to check that out. Until next time, this is Duff Tyler reminding you that if Duff said it, it must be true, because that's what a Duff said. <laughs>